HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli from Heritage Radio's In the Drink. On October 21st, join me and some of the most talented chefs, bartenders, and performers in New York at Not My Day Job, a cocktail and culinary showcase. Food and cocktails from restaurants like Shake Shack, The Meatball Shop, Mark Forgione, Lartuzzi, The Wren, Colicchio & Sons, Macau Training Company, and more will be available from 1 to 5 p.m. at the Prince George Ballroom. Tickets are only $50 and will benefit the 4th Arts Block, Greenwich House, and Urban Arts Partnership and are available at notmydayjob2012.eventbrite.com. Hope to see you there. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, and you're listening to another episode of In the Drink, the radio show that uh, is all about great things to drink and absolutely nothing about golf whatsoever. Zero. Zilch. Um, Today, I'm super excited. I have uh, two of my really good friends. Um, They are Michelin-starred chefs. um, They're originally from Austria, and they have some of just the the greatest places around town. They have the the really fine, beautiful, and elegant seasonal restaurant um, up in Midtown, and then the super hip hip, I'd say Austrian tavern, um, kind of restaurant meets wine bar, uh, meets just a really fun, cozy time uh, in the East Village called Eddie and the Wolf. Um, I'm here with uh, Edward Fraunader and Wolfgang Bonn. Uh, thanks so much, guys, for, uh, for coming in. Really excited. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's great to have you. And then uh, you guys are about to open up a, uh, a new uh, wine bar, I understand, or a, co- a new cocktail bar called The Third Man. It's going to be a cocktail bar. It's half a block away from Eddie and the Wolf. It's going to be a bit more uh, elegant than Eddie and the Wolf is. Um, we got to offer people something different. we got very fond memories of a similar place in Vienna where we both grew up and got wasted multiple times. Um, and we try to model it around that, the same style, which is, um, very, very 1930s, 1920s, art deco, art nouveau. It should be inviting. It should be easy. It should be elegant, but it should not like put off people. 
in terms of um, in terms of being like too highbrow for the East Village. I think we're gonna have a a very nice stretch there. Right. So this is you know this is a drink show in the in the drink, but you guys do uh, the the wine programs, the beverage lists at uh, at your restaurant. So how will your experience as chefs uh, inspire the cocktail program at the Third Man? Well, I think since we are chefs and we understand our food. Uh, that was also the reason why we uh, decided to do the wine list because as chefs you you understand the food profile and therefore you can uh, perfectly match the wines to that. So basically the same idea we have for the third man. Uh, we we watched a lot of mixologists these days, bartenders and what they are doing and they are kind of like combining the kitchen aspect with the bar aspect. So we thought it would be a good idea to uh, give it a try and have two chefs uh, coming up with some cocktails. Yeah, so do you have any um, any cocktails that you're working on right now that you're very excited about? What are some of your inspirations? Well, we got we got some like um, Viennese slash Austrian inspired cocktails. We got like an, an apricot gin fizz with elderflower cordial. We're gonna work on a kraut. Uh, we're gonna use the pickling juice from from Eddie and the Wolf on some uh, uh, bourbon cocktails at the restaurant. Um, I've learned that actually that's like being a bartender and being a pastry chef is very close to one another in terms of garnishes and syrups, uh, cordials, bitters, etc. So we're going to incorporate that into the, into the program and having the restaurant really like half a block away, uh, with all its resources makes things much, much easier because you can really like, you can, there's so much cross pollination and there's so much, uh, synergies between one place and the other. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be really, really good for for both uh, establishments. So when they tell me that it's a half hour wait at Eddie and the Wolf, which uh, which usually it is at least, um, um, I'll ha- head over to the Third Man, and is that that's kind of the idea. I mean, I know with uh, with Anfora and Delanima over in the West Village, we uh, we definitely have Anfora kind of as our as our waiting room for for Delanima. Um, so usually, you guys are so you guys are so busy over there. Uh, okay, so I, I recently got asked a question about. Uh, wine spritzers i was like that's i i don't ever drink wine spritzers that sounds terrible and then like well do you think do you know of any wine professionals who who might have any insight on them like i don't think wine professionals really drink wine spritzers and then i was like wait a second my friends my friends eddie and wolfgang probably you know with their austrian background have uh you know some some insight onto it and because the the spritz is is somewhat of a traditional drink in in austria isn't it I mean, yep. a lot of a lot of winemakers. Like Wolfi Wolf is the master of the spritz. He he when he when whenever he works the vintage in Austria, the harvest, he drinks plenty of wine spritzers. <laughs> and all those wine producers who come to New York, that like they got they got shit they get shit faced on spritzers. It must take it's, a lot of spritzers. It's just a, a better way to do it because you, you can <laughs> still enjoy the wine, but you can drink much much more, especially when it's super mm-hmm. hot outside. Uh, using a little bit of sparkling water or seltzer water, preferable. Uh, with some uh, usually field plant called Gemischte Satz in Austria, uh, perfect for the summer. I mean, they don't spritz high-end stuff. Right. I mean, only under very rare occasions. When <laughs> when nothing goes anymore, then you, then you spritz the high-end stuff. But most of the time, those like very like simple, simple understood wines who are like enjoy with the spritz. And like there's so many variations to the spritz. Right now in Austria, there's like the Aperol spritz, uh, which I think to be quite delicious. There is the um, that that new like f- fairly fashionable drink in Austria called Hugo, like Wolfie's new Hugo. dog. Wolfie just got a Weimaraner, <laughs> so uh, it's the same. It's the same. He he named the Weimaraner after a beverage. 
um, Hugo is a uh, is basically also white wine spritz with elderflower uh, cordial, uh, mint, and ice cubes. So um, people, there's this there can be very delicious wine cocktails. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds great, and I, I'm a big fan of the Aperol spritz. I think it's just a just a delicious and slightly bitter way to uh, to get started. It's super Euro, super Euro, it's super Euro. <laughs> Uh, so something that I, I've always wondered about, uh, and I'm glad to have you guys here to, to ask you this question, is uh, um, you know you guys are both co co chefs, co creators uh, of the restaurant. Um, how how does that work out at all? <laughs> I mean, it, is it challenging to have to have two visions, um, or how how do you guys find find that you're able to work together? It's kind of like a marriage. Like uh, everybody brings something to the table, and then you have to make it work. Uh, I think it was a little bit more challenging back in the days. Where he's we he's talking about baggage. That, that, that's, that, that's the marriage part. Everybody brings something to the table and then we work it out. So it was a little bit more challenging in the beginning when we <laughs> stood next to each other in the kitchen because we both had uh, different visions of what to do. And then you have to kind of like uh, come up with a common ground. Uh, but today we have uh, uh, plenty of different projects. So we kind of like split up and uh, overlook and then we just meet and uh, discuss how to go forward i believe everything is tested uh multiple ways and like we never believed in our kitchens to be like the the utmost uh, dictatorship kitchen where like what the chef says it's going to be done a kitchen needs structure but i think sometimes to test decisions in a, in a thesis antithesis synthesis way uh, gives gives a better a better outcome and like you also look on on certain on different from different perspectives on the same problem, which in my opinion is is like today and the, I, don't, I don't believe the restaurant world to be to be gotten like easier the last couple of years uh, is a good way to like just like just also test yourself and and ask yourself is this the right way to go about it uh, is there a better way to go go about it and there's always like you know what there's there's thirty six ways to cook cookova. 36 different ways and none of the ways is right or wrong so in that respect you can there's even more than just two solutions but at, at least there are two different perspectives on on a problem Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, so I, I'm actually really curious about the fact that you guys uh, both put together your, your wine list um, is that something that you envisioned from the start or did you have a, a beverage director that went terribly, terribly wrong? <laughs> well, I think it was the, the 2008 and the start of the financial crisis where we had to rethink the whole concept. And obviously, we had to cut back. And uh, my my family background in Austria is actually the wine business. Uh, my fa- Eddie's background is uh, bakeries and uh, restaurants. My, my background is wine. So we decided in order to, to save some money that uh, we're going to jump in. We definitely understand wine. Uh, we went to plenty of wine tastings, and uh, so we started doing it. And after a while, we saw that it really made sense because we really matched the beverages with what we created in the kitchen. And uh, so, I mean, at this point, we probably could afford somebody a wine director, but decided uh, as long as we have that time that we're gonna continue doing that. We also do the, the trainings in the restaurant. We, we teach people about uh, Austrian-German wine in particular because this is our field of expertise. Um, we tell them about uh, all the differences and basically teach them how to sell the wines right. Uh, what's really important for me is not to 
to sell the most expensive wine, for me it's important to find the perfect wine for a dish or for the person. So have a conversation, have a long conversation with the customer, what he really wants, and uh, then find the p- perfect match for him. Yeah, I mean, I always say that the wine is the sauce for the dish that the chef never actually gets to taste. So you're actually tasting your sauce and uh, pre-selecting it uh, to make sure that make sure that it pairs. Because you can have a, a dish that you've you've worked on, you've put together, and then someone could absolutely destroy it with <laughs> drinking the wrong wine with that dish. Um, so I think that, I just absolutely think that's fantastic. And uh, it's something that I try to do with Gabe a lot. Because, um, you know, at, at, at our restaurants, Gabe has very particular uh, profile. Food tends to be very spicy, um, very high acid, and a lot of salt. <laughs> and so there, there are only like there are only particular wines that that can go with those with those kind of dishes. So I just always try to choose the wine list to go around the food because ultimately people are there to eat. <laughs> so you choose a lot of like northern Italian, a lot of northern Italian wines, exactly. Um, a lot of the, yeah, aromatic wines are, are really great with that. Uh, red wines that are juicy and have lots of acid, but not not very dry or oaky. Uh, I think I think pair well with that kind of food as well. Um, what kind of wines? Uh, I know your lists are are mostly Austrian, um, but then what what kind of flavor profiles go well with with your food? Um, one of the things I really appreciate about about the restaurants is sure there are some of the you know the the more traditional dishes um maybe a little bit of the heavier dishes but i think that you guys also show the fresher lighter side of austrian cuisine and um i think i think that's just exciting and, and definitely with what what new yorkers want to eat right now it's a bit it's a bit of more of modern a bit of more modern approach to like to germanic fare we know that that uh these days like beer gardens are like super, super up and coming, all the German charcuterie, sausage culture, which people do enjoy, especially over the summer. This is the last leg of the summer. I, I hope it stays a bit warmer for a bit longer. Um, but like, since we are like younger chefs as well, we wanted to focus more on the on a refined execution of Austrian cuisine. And Austrian cuisine ultimately is meat and potato, but nobody says that meat and potato does, to have, to, does have to give you a heart attack after you finish the plate. So therefore, I believe that that this like more elegantly executed fear also fits the the people who come to our places. It's it's uh, it's a very wide range in terms of age group. Like honestly, at Eddie the Wolf, you got everything on a on a Saturday Sunday from like four to eighty four. It's a pretty wide stretch, and it's beautiful to see a restaurant who can attract that wide array of people because normally, and you know it from New York, it's a it's a mostly homogenous. Mm-hmm clientele who goes to rest to a certain restaurant and to have something what what appeals to so many different age groups it's just it's it's special i just hope you don't serve the spritzer the, the people who are four years old. no no no, no, no. We, we, <laughs> just just for the protocol we id everybody even if you come in uh on in a wheelchair with gray hair it's okay yeah i don't think that anyone will ever be insulted by uh, iding them that's that's kind of my policy if you're if you're clearly uh beyond id age you're gonna you're, you know you're gonna feel good that you're id'd and um yeah i don't think anyone will ever be insulted by that um but yeah as as the the weather is getting a little bit cooler I actually I'd love Eddie particularly in the uh, 
in the the cooler months. It has mm-hmm. just a real warm coziness to it. It's dark. It's cozy. It's sexy in there. And uh, I definitely check out Eddie in the Wolf in the uh, in the cooler months. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break right now. Um, thanks uh, thanks again to our guests uh, Eddie and the Wolf, <laughs> Eddie Fraunader and uh, Wolfgang Bond from uh, Eddie and the Wolf and Seasonal. And we're going to be back in uh, just a few minutes with In the Drink. network and become a member membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably minded businesses that support us to become a member visit heritageradionetwork.org today today's program has been brought to you by whole foods market did you know that pollinators are needed for more than two-thirds of the world's crop species most of these pollinators are bees However, North America's bee population has been steadily declining since the 1990s. Whether you live in the country or the city, you can show your commitment by hosting a hive in your backyard or even on a rooftop. The beekeeping movement is growing, so you're sure to find swarms of folks who can help you find your way. Learn more about the ways you can help be the solution at wholefoodsmarket.com slash share the buzz. All right, welcome back to In the Drink. Um, I'm here with Eddie Fraunader and Wolfgang Bonn uh, from Seasonal Restaurant, uh, Eddie and the Wolf, the great Austrian uh, tavern in the East Village, and the soon-to-open the Third Man Cocktail Bar, the chef-inspired, recipe-driven cocktail bar, which is also going to be in the East Village. It's going to be great. It's definitely one of the uh, most anticipated openings of the fall, along with, I'm going to plug my own, La Picho, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, La Picho and the Third Man, uh, the two most anticipated <laughs> uh, openings of uh, of this fall season. Anyway, um, Eddie and uh, Wolfgang brought a little uh, a little something for us to taste. Um, is this uh, inspired by Oktoberfest? Is that what's going on here? This is a, a, an enormous bottle of beer. It, exactly, uh, it's uh, Altmünster uh, Fest beer or Oktoberfest beer. Uh, this uh, particular brewery belongs to the Radeberger Group. Uh, I think the Radeberger Group is the biggest uh, brewery group in Germany, which is part of uh, the Dr. Oetker family. It's a family-run business, uh, food-providing business, uh, kind of similar to Kraft. Um, I really like the guys behind the, the Radeberger Group. They have amazing products, Radeberger beer, Hervels, uh some some wheat beer and uh, this in particular they just brew um, every fall basically for the Oktoberfest so it's kind of like the harvest fest for the beer brewers they are, they they want to celebrate their harvest and uh, they usually produce a little bit uh, higher alcohol beer 
which obviously has a lot of flavor as well. Yeah, you've worked, you've we, worked hard sh- all. Should we pop it open? Oh, yeah, let's do this. All right. Can you uh, describe this? Uh, I, 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 I kept calling it the, the suction-y, suction-y top, but I'm sure that's not the, uh, the name of it. How would you describe the, the way this, this beer is enclosed? It's a, it's a um, number one, it's such a large format that I guess uh, it's intended. You, did you hear that? Yeah. And uh, just, just for the protocol, I ID'd everybody who entered this room. <laughs> and um, first and foremost, since it's such a large format, when we reclose this for the carbonation purposes, it's, it's, cera- it's a ceramic pop with a, uh, like a little rubber band. And um, it's a really, really old uh, closing mechanism. Goes back to goes back to the monk beers from uh, from Germany, and um, it's just delicious, man. And it, it, it stays so fresh, and you can open it, you can drink two, three glasses, you can close it again. It doesn't lose anything. You don't, you never lose the cap because it's attached to the bottle. It has so many advantages. Yeah, that's let's, fantastic. Let's, let's taste this. All right, cheers. Prost. Huh? Cheers. As you can see, it uh, the, the color mm. is also a little bit more amber, a little darker. I really like the format. <laughs> I always say that that magnet that anytime you bring a magnum, a large format bottle of wine, that gets the party started. I can see why they call this the fest this beer. Is, this is the German growler. <laughs> this is the this German. is the German version of a growler. So um, you have the combination of the German growler and the size, and then that great champagne pop when you pop the cork. Uh, and yeah, you know the party's gonna get sorry. This this beer is delicious. It's, it's much, fantastic. Uh, much maltier than you see with a lot of uh, American craft beers these days. And and again, it's just available uh, for a couple of months during during Oktoberfest, and then it disappears. Um, I think what they do for for the holiday season, they create bock beer, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like similar, also high in alcohol for um, for more celebration and for for. <laughs> Better booze. So getting so getting so getting quicker drunk is called more celebration. Uh, just just note to yourself. <laughs> Can you tell us about the uh, the Oktoberfest celebration? Does it does it translate over into Austria, or do Austrians just go next door to Germany and to to have some fun? I think for the real experience, you have to go to the what they call the Wiesen in in uh, Munich. Uh, this is where the Oktoberfest happens. But uh, I think there are a lot of uh, different festivals in Austria in Germany. Where they use like huge tents, uh, they have traditional music, uh, pretty much the same fare: roasted chicken, uh, sausages. Um, everything is very, very meat-heavy, and uh, then they consume massive amounts of beers. And it's only it's only one liter jugs. Only o- one liter. Jugs. Originally, it's only one liter. The idea of the Oktoberfest was that they actually opened this like imperial garden mm-hmm. to the public. So it's basically it was like the the aristocracy uh, being together with with uh, the the regular people like back in the days it was like in 1780. So that's what's called the reason that's when they opened this this like lawn and had like everybody celebrating together. I like the egalitarian spirit behind it. <laughs> it's good, no, absolutely. And in 47 percent days. <laughs> Yes, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, German beer drinking traditions, though, is of the, the Kolsch beer. It's something that we always have on, on draft, uh, and it's what I want at the end of my shift. But quite the opposite of the, of the one liter. You get the Kolsch in a, in a very, very small glass. And uh, I remember, you know, it's a, a common beer from Cologne. And one of the things I love about it is that when, before your glass is completely finished, they come and give you a new, fresh, cold beer 
glass of Kolsch. It's kind of like refilling water here in New York. Um, and so when I see those one liter jugs of beer, I'm like, how are they going to have this cold till cold the end of the, the end, end of the glass? I wonder the same thing. <laughs> But I'm sure there are some experts out there. They keep it extra fresh and cold. They drink it yeah. so fast. Or you have to drink it extra <laughs> fast, huh? <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, and it's also quite a challenge for the, the women who basically surf uh, on the Wiesen because they have to carry those huge uh, stone mugs full with one liter of beer. And they don't carry one or two. They, they usually run around with eight to ten, uh, like five, four to five in each hand. There's championships. Which is, uh, there's, there's quite honestly, amazing. There's at, the, at the end of the Wiesen, to like, either at the beginning or the end, they make at the beginning to promote it. And at the end, to find the, the person who can carry the most, they actually have championships. What woman can carry, what waitress can carry the most one-liter mugs. It's, it's bizarre. It's so strange. It's bizarre. <laughs> so, that, so that's not just for, for tourists at the Hofbrauhaus. That's like at all Oktoberfest. It's called it's German efficiency. German efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> And they have to train all year to do that. <laughs> <laughs> They don't need a gym in Bavaria. They just uh, they just carry the the stone mugs. Well, if you ever want to have a training camp at Eddie and the Wolf, I will. Uh, I would be happy to be a judge. I'm just putting my services out there. I'll volunteer. Um, I would be happy to do that. Um, so one of the things that you know, any any um, uh, international wine list or European focused wine list right now has to have Austrian wines. They're, they're completely world world class wines. Um, You know, I, I think you're seeing a lot of Somalians, especially getting excited about the Gruner Veltliner, the uh, you know the the native grape to Austria, and the um, and find, for for some reason I find that Austrian producers, though I speak to, get a little bit more excited about their own Rieslings. Um, do you find that that's the case? What what which wine? What Austrian whites are people drinking? And then we're going to talk about the reds as well because I'm in love with a few Austrian reds. Um, well, I think uh, Krunovitlina is the most produced uh, Austrian white wine grape. Uh, so people in Austria, especially the, the lighter wines, they, they love to drink their, their Krunovitlinas. <coughs> uh, Riesling is the, the second most important uh, white wine grape in Austria. But uh, if you really get into, into the wine business, and I spoke to a lot of sommeliers and uh, wine purchaser in, uh, in New York City, and everybody loves Rieslings. Austrian Riesling, German Riesling. It's the, the high acidity, it's the, the beautiful balance, it's the minerality which usually comes out, especially when you live a little bit of residual sugar. Mm -hmm. It's really just beautiful. Uh, but of course, we, as two Austrians, we, we don't want to just stick to those two. We also want to showcase the rest of the uh, Austrian varieties. Um, there's, for instance, Gelba Muscatella, which we both love in summer. Very floral, very light, ten and a half to eleven percent alcohol. You can sit outside. You kind of like feel the grass and uh, all the all the flowers around you. You feel it in the bottle, and you can drink more than a bottle without being being drunk. And uh, once we move into into fall and winter, where the food, the dishes are getting a little bit heavier, we also like to choose uh, some of the little bit more full-bodied white wines not necessarily higher in alcohol mm -hmm. but just full-bodied by by itself um rotavitlina which has the same name as krunavitlina just red um it doesn't necessarily mean it's a red wine it just has a red skin but the wine is actually white uh neuburger gewürztraminer 
those are the grapes we really like to to showcase more in fall and winter what i also, also believe when it comes to the differentiation between austria and and german riesling what you just mentioned before mm -hmm. i believe the uh, austrian Riesling to be a bit more well balanced and elegant a bit more mineralically driven especially when they come from the wachau um But of course, they wanna. There's always this like little, uh, this little like game in between winemakers who makes the better Riesling. And of course, the Austrians think that the Austrians are making the better Rieslings, and the Germans think they make the better Rieslings. But this is kind of like a, a playing field where I think both both countries produce like wonderful wines. Um, even though I tend to believe that the Austrian Rieslings are a tiny bit more better priced, mm -hmm. the Austrian high end Rieslings are better priced than the German high end. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an argument for the ages. It's never going to be <laughs> resolved. I mean, I think you'll find just as many people, you know, even among sommeliers on, on either side of that. Uh, and uh, I, I tend to like both of them very much. But certainly that a drier style, but also with a little bit of, of the residual sugar. I find that that if it's bone dry, sometimes it, the, the wines tend to be a little bit a little bit more muted. Even though I know that that's the that's the style that more people are going for right now. The super super bone dry. Uh, Rieslings, but those are certainly really age-worthy wines as well. Like with all that acidity, it's uh, just great wines. Um, and you know, something that I think a lot of people might find uh, a little bit surprising because I think Austria is really, really is associated with those with those great white grapes. Uh, is how interesting and unique the reds can be. Um, we have quite a few Austrian reds uh, on the list um, uh, at, at Amphora, and, and I really love them. What are some of your your favorite? What do you think are some of the interesting Austrian reds? Uh, Not and not just the not just the uh, you know I, I think what's what's most interesting in Austria is like you said before those unique native indigenous grapes um, so maybe some of the Blaufrankisch and Zweigelt and and unique grapes that are in interesting to Austria. Well, uh, for me, Blaufrankisch coming from Burgenland, which is the, the very eastern part and also the the red wine country, so to say, for me, Blaufrankisch is the most important one. Um, and I think Austria came a very long way from the 80s where there were some scandals and basically the wine industry was completely destroyed. But it also helped uh, Austrian winemakers, the, the new generation, the, 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 the kids actually left Austria. They studied abroad, they worked abroad, they went to northern Italy, they went to Burgundy, Bordeaux. A lot of people studied in California and Australia. And then they came back uh, after a couple of years in abroad and started applying those techniques in for Austrian winemaking. And what they tried to do in the beginning, um, they went very international in terms of grapes. They, they planted a lot of Merlot, they planted a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah. And after a couple of years, they figured out, you know what, why don't we stick to our native grapes? Blaufrankisch, Zweigelt, St. Laurent. And what, they, what the outcome was is really fantastic because all of a sudden in the last 10, 15 years, we see Blaufrankisch and Zweigelt with a lot of potential. Super minerality, uh, great concentration, uh, wines which definitely can compete on the international market, more so than Merlots or Cabernet Sauvignon from Austria because there are other, other regions in this world who just have a much better climate for those international grapes. Yeah, and, and you can find a Merlot grown in you know, 50 countries around the world, but no one else is really growing the Zweigelt and Blaufrankisch. And one of the things I really love about Austrian Reds is that I find them to be 
very to have a lot of flavor to be full flavor but without being uh too high in alcohol um without being too overbearing so i find that they have really great refreshing acidity uh which is the trick of uh of the sommelier uh to find to choose a wine that that has a really great acidity it makes you look like a brilliant sommelier <laughs> but you know you guys know that as as chefs that dishes have to be uh balanced out and i find that a, a wine that has crisp acidity balances out most dishes They're also very food friendly. Like Austrian whites and reds are both because it's more of more or less a cooler climate. And even though Burgenland can get really really hot in the summer, uh, they're very they're very food friendly. They're not too concentrated. They have a very subtle usage in of of wood. They uh, they're not too alcoholic, as you said before. They're not too concentrated. Mm-hmm. And there's also grape varietals. Most people like most people don't even know. Like for instance, Saint Laurent. Saint Laurent is a grape varietal. Like. Pff, Everybody thinks it's French, even though it's Austrian. And uh, it's, it's uh, I think, the newcomer, uh, because I think people get more familiar with, like, Blaufränkisch and Zweigel, and it's cool, and it's hip, and this and that. And then you guide them to the direction of St. Laudem, and they want to drink something a bit heavier. And they drink really, really well, and they have, they have beautiful bodies. They are very, very, they're easy to understand, but still not simple. And uh, I think people really go into that direction also some of them uh, come and ask for Pinot Noir and I think growing Pinot in Austria with especially in like lower Austria Pinot is a very thin skinned grape mm-hmm. so in a, in a cooler climate it takes a lot of art of the winemaker to produce good results so but it's it's starting that people do produce beautiful Pinots in, in Austria and I think people really appreciate it in New York wow Uh, I am absolutely blown away with uh, two chefs just completely schooling me, schooling all of us on uh, Austrian wine and drinking culture. Uh, thank you so much. We have Eddie Fraunader and Wolfgang Bahn of Eddie and the Wolf Seasonal and the soon-to-open The Third Man uh, down in the East Village. Uh, thanks a lot, guys, and thank you for listening to In the Drink. Uh, I'm Joe Campanelli, and see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.